on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. So I was a federal prosecutor and I tried cases against John Flynn. And John was recognized as the best criminal defense lawyer at that time. And he just had a reasonable, soothing kind of a voice that you wanted to listen to. He He had that ability. I think it came, I don't know that John practiced it as much as he did, but he tried case after case, which those lawyers did in those days. They were in court all the time. And so they they were able to go to court, and they did. But uh, he had he had a wonderful voice. I I used to sit. He'd be tearing my witness to shreds, and I'd be enjoying it, thinking this is a wonderful experience. This is great, and, you know. And then it would hit me. Yikes! You know, he, my case just fell apart. That was James Brosnahan, and this is May the Record Reflect. Hello there, and welcome back to the show. I'm Marcy Mangan, host of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. And today, I am talking to a legendary legend in the trial world, a man who hasn't just practiced with and before bold name trial attorneys and judges of the past six decades, but he is quite the bold name himself. Mr. Brosnahan has appeared before United States Supreme Court Justices Warren Burger, John Paul Stevens, Sandra Day O'Connor, Byron White, Thurgood Marshall. He has spoken truth to power to United States Senators Ted Kennedy, Orrin Hatch, Joe Biden. He has worked cases on one side of the V or the other that brought him within one and often zero degrees of separation with headliners like Ferdinand Marcos, Casper Weinberger, John Walker Lind, and the Oakland Raiders. It seems there's nothing he hasn't done as a trial lawyer. Mr. Brosnahan has been described as a lion of the trial bar. Even as senior of counsel at Morrison Forrester in San Francisco, he remains one of the top 30 trial lawyers in the country. He's also been teaching for NIDA practically since the very beginning in the 1970s, and indeed is the recipient of our first Lifetime Achievement Award. I am honored to welcome to the podcast the one and only James Brosnahan. Here's our interview. So we are recording this episode the day after Halloween, which is somewhat appropriate given that our topic today is related to something that many people fear more than death itself, and that is public speaking. As the host of a podcast for trial lawyers, I am going to assume that most of our listeners are not among those fearing public speaking, but they still get nervous. And boy, how everybody hates to hear themselves on tape. Today, I have a legendary legend in the world of trial advocacy, Jim Brosnahan, on board to talk about a particular aspect of public speaking and to talk about his life in law. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You have been using your voice now for over 60 years as one of the greatest trial lawyers in the country. And this past summer, you filmed a couple of videos that you uploaded to LinkedIn. 
that shared tips on how to improve the quality of your voice. And when we spoke a couple of months ago, you shared with me that you were kind of surprised at how popular they were and that they went viral on LinkedIn. So my first question is, what was the impetus for recording these LinkedIn videos on improving the quality of your voice? Well, it's uh, actually a neat uh, story because I was teaching, and I want to say it was probably the late 70s. And we, we were still learning how to teach people, you know, how to try cases. But uh, there was a young man in my class, and he was very bright, he worked hard, he understood the, the case structure and all of that. But he had a voice that was really, I want to say, very hard to listen to, mm. and almost difficult, uh, almost beyond wanting to listen to him. And at that moment, I had no idea what to do about that. We were making suggestions about every other aspect of standing and what you do and gestures and all these kind of substantive things. And I had no idea. So when I went home, I bought some books on voice, and there's a lot of them. And the reason there's a lot of them, I found out over the years, is so many people are petrified about speaking. And... What surprised me the most, because I do a lot of teaching and I taught at Berkeley Law for 10 years, was that law students who are going into law, very often, about 40% of them have some concern about their voice. And as I went around the country teaching with Nita, I would ask audiences, sometimes large audiences, there might, there could, if we had six sections together, as you know, that's a huge audience. I would say, how many of you have had training in speaking? And maybe two hands out of, you know, 150. Hmm. And there they are, they're practicing lawyers. And uh, I, I started asking, when you were in law school, was there a class on speaking? No, there wasn't. You get some people who, some lawyers who have done speaking in uh, high school, maybe, or debating, a few of them, not, not that many, actually, or some little theater. They had a part and they did all that. When I started teaching voice, uh, what I found was that a great many people had a deep concern about it. And they would ask me, they would say, at what point did you stop getting nervous? And I would tell them, honestly, I've never stopped getting nervous. I mean, I got a little nervous today, but you're, <laughs> you're so nice and this is neat. I didn't get very nervous, but you see what I mean? So you mentioned the LinkedIn lectures. They're, of course, free. <laughs> and uh, there you turn into LinkedIn, and there's me, and I'm sitting in my office, and I'm giving six suggestions uh, about, uh, about that. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit. But I learned so much myself. My ability to comprehend a client who's telling me a story went, went right up. Um, the, the voice tells a great many things. And it tells, you know, 
am I interested in this session today? I am. I'm very interested. I hope that comes through in my voice. So that's the story. And I've been writing about it, teaching it, asking people have they had voice training. It hasn't changed, to my knowledge, one bit. Most law schools in this country, one of the great failures is they don't offer a semester on the training of the voice of the person who's going to go out and charge money for talking. Well, we're just going to do our little part here today with helping people improve their own voice quality. So before we break down those six qualities that you presented in your video series um, so that we can learn those tips and then hopefully apply them, I think the first step is that we need to know what we sound like. So how do we go about evaluating our own voice? Well, you take your telephone out of your pocket or your purse and uh, you, you turn it on and you read something. It can be almost anything. But, um, of course, <laughs> I could read my own book. You see. <laughs> yeah. I hope you will. You see the subtlety. And so I walked into the triangular-shaped building at the corner of Montgomery and Market Street. Now, I, I didn't like the sound of that. I want to slow it down. I think I talked too fast. I walked into the triangular-shaped building at the corner of Montgomery and Market Street on May 11th, 1966. That's a little better. Uh, and uh, you see, the technique is simply that. It's also to speak to a roommate, uh, a spouse, someone with patience, and to deal with those elements that you think need work, and everybody has them. Uh, I, recently, I went back and looked at one of my lectures, my little talks on voice, and I caught myself with three, three problems, and I told them what they were and, and all that. But the first lecture I gave uh, had 12,000 hits, and... It, 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 there are a lot of lawyers uh, and uh, some law students, I'm pleased to say, who really should be thinking about that right now. Well, no matter what kind of law they're going to go into, do you not have to speak well if you're going to report to the board of directors about a, a corporate deal? You do. You have, to, you have to sound like you know what you're doing. So that's the background, and uh, it's been very interesting. So let's get started then talking about those six voice qualities that you presented. The first one is tempo. What can you tell us about tempo? Well, I can tell a tale about myself because uh, the first 10 years I was trying cases, uh, I, was, I spoke very fast. And I, I just thought that was wonderful. And look at me, I'm talking fast. And that means I know what I'm talking about. And court reporters very often commented, I wouldn't say they praised me, but they said, you talk very fast. And I just thought, you know, the ego of the trial lawyer is unlimited. And I thought, that not that wonderful? And when I started working on The Voice, it, it occurred to me, and I... 
More than that, I saw other great trial lawyers in my early days, and they were not in a hurry. Hmm. They were taking their time. They were letting it sink in. And I was starting to copy them. That, that constant trial work helped me a lot. So the tempo is an assessment, first of all, by you. Do you talk very fast? Is that a good thing? Is that what you want to do? And then there's specifics, some of which we're going to get into a little bit here, like pausing. Young lawyers particularly think that if they pause, it means they don't know what they're going to say next. It doesn't mean that at all. I walked into the room. I saw the body. There was a gun. There were bullets on the floor. You're getting their attention, and you, you're going to keep it. This is worth hearing. I think every juror is sitting there thinking, is it going to be worth listening to this person, you know? Yeah. And so that makes the beginning very important. But uh, that's that's the idea of tempo. Now, I'm, I make it sound like you just record it and everything will be fine. Habit is one of the greatest motivators of human conduct. And if you've been talking in a fast way for a long time, you might be an urban dweller, and that's the way everybody talks. We're all in a hurry. We've got to get the children. We've got to pick them up at school. We've got to get over there. I've got to prepare the cross-examination. That's the way I talk. And I come along and I say, well, now you need to slow down. Trust me, it will take practice to get it. What you're looking for are variations. I'm not saying slow down all the time. Uh, I'm saying have the ability to take whatever the range is in your speech and vary that range. So sometimes you are talking fast because you're really hitting it. Sometimes we have to talk about justice, and that's what I'm going to do now. Okay? So... Since doing the podcast every month, I have my own um, Nita video review in that I have to listen to myself on, on this recording. And um, in the beginning, I always felt like I was in just a huge rush to speak and to respond. And so one of the first things that I had to learn and to train myself was to dial it way down, to pause for breath. And at first, I was really worried that I would sound... Um, ponderous and slow and maybe kind of stupid. Um, But I noticed on subsequent recordings that the more relaxed my pace was, the better I sounded and actually the more natural. So I think that slowing down doesn't have the effect that we fear it will, that it actually is a very good thing. I think that's exactly right. Uh, we want to show people we really know what we're talking about. And that comes out in some funny ways and some negative ways, actually. And uh, the pace is something to be uh, conscious of. Um, there was a great criminal lawyer, Tom Sullivan, uh, is a great criminal lawyer in, in Chicago, had wonderful cases, and taught for Nita, by the way. And he had a style of starting very slowly. 
right at the beginning, in a situation when the jury's going to listen to you, and he would build up and put a little more emphasis, uh, and he would build up a little bit of speed, and he would get going, and then the facts would roll, and there it was, and the voice would go up a little bit, and there he was, and that was, he was comfortable with that. Yes. When all the instruction is over, are you feeling okay with this? You got you got to be yourself. You can't be uh, somebody. You can't be me. Certainly, you can't be someone else. You can see them, and we may talk about this a little bit. You may listen to them, and you may get ideas about how they speak. But you've got to be yourself. You got to be sincere. That's true of men, and it's true of women. I hope we have uh, a moment to talk about both. Um, but it, it's uh, very important that you be genuine and you be yourself. So the second tip that you, or quality that you talked about in your video was volume, which is how to project your voice without straining so that you're able to be heard. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think that's one of the more difficult things for this reason that this apparatus in the throat here is a very tender thing. Uh, it Originally, uh, it was not meant for speech. That was developed back in the cave. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough that my daughter, Lisa, uh, is an opera singer, and she would come to my class, and uh, she explained a lot of these things. And I, I got diagrams, so you can hit Google and see a diagram of the apparatus. So the, uh, the ability to throw sound uh, and get enough of it is not the same with everybody. We know this with the way we talk to people and all of that. The goal, which is not easy, is to be like an actor who can throw the voice up into the second balcony. That's what you want to do. The equivalent in trial is to be sure that every word you pronounce is heard by juror one in the back row and juror six in the back row. So, because if they haven't heard what you said, it's like it never happened. True. Or if you, if you said it in a way that kind of, you know, it's not going to be there in the third day of jury deliberations, and it's got to be. So the, the sound, what do you do? You record it, certainly. And then you try to get this range that I'm talking about, but without straining the voice. Occasionally, there will be uh, people and lawyers who have a, a, a somewhat serious issue with regard to their their voice. And that's always been outside my range. I can't, I'm not the one to talk to, but I can recommend that they should talk to somebody about it. Um, and so the sound is, is very important. And the place where you see the sound is an American corporate uh, selling, and uh, you you turn on the best uh, people on television, and what you find is that corporate America has found them 
they're very good as investigators or whatever it might be, but the sound of their voice is worth listening to. So you say, I want to hear this guy on Channel 7 at night. That's the news I watch. And part of it is the sound of the voice. So, yes, recording can help you the sound, make you more conscious of it, and allow you to work a little bit to get a greater range. But uh, don't be surprised if it's somewhat difficult to just get someone. You can't get someone else's voice. This is this is what you got to work with right here. Well, shall we move on to tone, which is the third voice quality that you mentioned? Well, and that's, um, we do have control over the tone. We use it all the time. We talk to the kids, did I not tell you to be home at 10 o'clock? That's a tone. That's a mood. And the mood and the tone are very much related. We set the mood and suddenly we're angry about something or something, and then you think, gee, I wish I hadn't. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? So the tone is something we really do control as a regular matter. The sound of the voice in terms of tone is within our current range, whatever that is. And you can practice different tones. Habit, as I said, is so important that we have, we have a way of talking, and that's what we're comfortable with. What we want to do is get different ways of talking depending on the situation and the mood. You're in the courtroom. There you are. There's a jury in the box. There's a judge up front. The judge may be happy with you, not happy with you. That's a different environment entirely and you're trying to set a certain mood and what is that mood that you're trying to set you may be trying to establish a, a very important principle presumption of innocence there's a certain dignity that you can bring with your voice if you practice reasonable doubt i would say every criminal lawyer ought to spend half an hour a month practicing the the reasonable doubt argument, negligence in a civil case. How, how do you want to say it? What do you think a persuasive voice sounds like? What is the tone? I'd say that the person is convinced that what they're saying is, is correct. It doesn't mean they're right, of course. And there have been some great orators. Uh, I can think, I already mentioned some of the horrible people in the history of speech, but uh, uh, the tone, that, 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 that overall voice, to some extent, I have to admit, I have to admit this, that I think some people are given better voices than others. But that doesn't change anything we're thinking about here at this moment, because what we want to do is take whatever voice we got, it may have come from our parents, probably had quite a bit to do with how the parents talked, because that's what we hear. And think, think about how long we're just listening to the parents, that first 10 years, and we're listening to them, and they have moods, 
And so, but anybody can expand their abilities uh, to to find their best voice. That's I guess that's the way I would put it. Find where is your best voice, and um, uh, that's practice. That's what that is. I did it. Funny, I said before I went to law school, I got this idea, I'm going to go to law school. I was working on a chicken farm, actually, which helped me make the decision I'd rather be in in law school than feeding 10,000 chickens with 100-pound bags of food. And uh, so, uh, but I did it then. I've done it now. In my LinkedIn uh, we'll get to this, but in my LinkedIn session, I went back and critiqued myself, and then I confessed to the audience that uh, I had found these defects. And uh, you know, teachers do everything they can to help their students. So uh, it takes yes. constant practice, and we can get into some techniques. For example, my. My grandson has, has done some acting in, in, uh, in college and later, and uh, he was nice enough to invite my wife, Carol, and I to backstage to listen to them warm up. You know what they do? They all get together. Every, every actor that's about to perform, they all get together, and here's what they did. <laughs> You're kidding. Before before your audience turns this off, they uh, <laughs> uh, don't have to do that. But I, I think my point is a good one. What is your method of warming up? Are you going to not warm up? You're going to walk up to the lectern at the beginning of your argument, and you haven't done anything. You haven't done anything. You have not done anything to warm up this delicate apparatus, you got to find something you like to do and you should do it. Yes. One of the ways that you shared you will sometimes warm up your voice is to count while you're running through um, like different pitches, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, those variations. And that can be one way to warm up. It is a good way to warm up. Um, uh, I, for many years, I would uh, give an opening statement, uh, especially the opening statement, uh, to my wife Carol. She she was a judge for forty years, and uh, so she would listen patiently. And then she'd say that, that part about the the computer chip. I didn't understand mm. that at all, you know, and. Uh, so that was, that was very helpful. I would go through the whole thing. And in the course of it, I would think, to some extent, where, where, see, this whole voice thing is connected to the analysis of a case. What are you going to emphasize? You can't emphasize everything. You can't just throw all the stuff at them and hope they organize it. What is it? What, what are the most important parts of this case? Is it the patent? Is that what it is? And that's where you make some tentative decisions as a warm-up as to how you're going to talk about the computer chip, what you're going to say. 
We're not talking now about what we're going to show them, which is almost more important, but what you're going to say. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned emphasis, even though it's a different type of emphasis, because the fourth point that you presented in your LinkedIn videos was actually emphasis. And that means using a lively delivery rather than flat and having vocal inflections. And that makes you more interesting to listen to. Much more so. Um, and here I start with my experience, and I have, uh, it may be more, but I think for 35 years, I have, when I had time, I would work with law students and practicing lawyers about, among other things, emphasis. And so I would do one-on-one sessions with them, and I would ask them to read. I would bring a final argument of some kind, and I would ask them to read that, and I just let them read it one time. And then I'd say, all right, now you, this is really what you're delivering. I want you to read it. And I would mark on the blackboard as though it was musical notes, the sound of their voice. You would be amazed, even after their fifth or sixth or seventh reading, how often those notes went like that. And, and I get to the point where it's beyond my competence, but it's psychological. I don't want to, says the person, I don't want to say, make this like this is really important because, uh, you know, I'm not sure what's really important. It's deeply uh, into the confidence you get when you really have time to prepare a case, that you really prepare this case, and this is it. I was interested when you said that you had worked with law students and kind of plotted their vocal inflections on a chalkboard and kind of matched them, you know, with a musical scale. Because when I was preparing for our our discussion today, I came across a a musician on YouTube and I sent you um, one of his videos and his name is Publio or Publio Delgado. And he harmonizes famous speeches. And the link that I sent with sent, sent to you was for Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. yeah. And so this musician figured out what note, what musical note of each inflection in Dr. King's voice was. And yeah. then suddenly the whole speech is just a song. He played it on guitar. And so I'm curious to know what you thought of that video. Well, I, I I think it's a wonderful contribution to the whole subject, not only of music, but of, of the voice. And of course, the voice is connected to music. That yeah. was the first music was the voice, of course, as far as I know. And uh, so, yes, I, I thought that that was terrific. There's another thing about Martin Luther King. Uh, I, I would collect voices. I collected them. I still, I still do it. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I find a voice that is particularly effective. I, I would have fundamental ministers. Uh, there were a couple that I listened to any chance I got. Sunday morning, if I got a chance, there, there he is. 
and you got to believe it. And this is happening, and God is coming. And you know, <laughs> I had cases so desperate that I had to do that. <laughs> I mean, oh. you know, but here's, if you're talking to a large audience, here's the problem, and I've encountered it over and over again. The student says, uh, "That's not me. No, uh, no emotion. No." Uh, then they tell you uh, that which is clearly incorrect. That uh, and here they are in the third year of law school, and they've been listening to the most rational, calm professors for three years. Which I don't mean to upset anybody, but I mean it's almost counterproductive. You know, if you're going to try cases. So they don't use emotion. Why is that? Why don't you use them? I've had these conversations. Okay, hundreds of times. Well, uh, if there if there's one on one that we can have a conversation, my parents uh, didn't. We didn't. We didn't. We just don't do that. Mm. Emotion is not my thing. To which I asked them, a client comes to you with the greatest case you've ever been offered, and they say there's only one thing. I want to know if you had to, could you use emotion? And you would have to say, no, I don't use it. And there goes the client. All you see is the back of the client leaving the building. And who used emotion? Cicero used emotion and did it successfully. Uh, I have a list of the greatest trial lawyers in the world. Uh, I'm not on it. Okay, just <laughs> let's be clear. I'm not on it. But Cicero is number one. Darrow is number two. I've started to recite the names of people, who, all of whom used emotion when it was appropriate. There's judgment involved here when you use emotion and when you don't. Of course, you want to be calm in the patent case or whatever it might be. But there may be a part of that patent case that calls for a little emotion because he looked at our patent, and now you're putting a little sound in there. Um, so those are those are thoughts about uh, the range of things that you need. I think everybody's got to practice enough to use emotion. Uh, because, but there's a little boy I've taught people starting even before Nita, but there's, there's a little voice up here that says, that's, that's not me. You know? And I, my answer is, if they say that, it can become you. You, you can be that, because you have the ability. In my opinion, we've been teaching here for a week or something. I, I think you can do it. You just need to practice it, that's all. So you mentioned that you like to collect voices. Are there any voices in particular that you would mention that you really admire, whether it's a um, maybe a politician or a public figure or an actor, maybe a fellow trial lawyer? Well, there's a lot of trial lawyers that uh, I started in Arizona and uh, was fortunate enough to try cases. I was a federal prosecutor and I tried cases against John Flynn. And John was recognized as the best criminal defense lawyer at that time. And he just had a reasonable, soothing kind of a voice that you wanted to listen to. 
Yeah, he had that ability. I think it came, I don't know that John practiced it as much as he did, but he tried case after case, which those lawyers did in those days. They were in court all the time, and so they they were able to go to court, and they did. But uh, he had he had a wonderful voice. I, I used to sit, he'd be tearing my witness to shreds, and I'd be enjoying it, thinking, this is wonderful experience. <laughs> this is great. And, you know, and then it would hit me, yikes. <laughs> my case just fell apart. And um, I won't take your time to give you examples, but John, John was awfully good. So the next point then is clarity. That is speaking clearly and using distinct and clear words so that your message comes across clearly. What do you think is the worst habit that most people have when it comes to using the clarity of their voice? So this is where I went back to one of my LinkedIn lectures uh, to critique myself. Uh, Not not the professor saying, well, you know, this is what you do. And uh, in that talk, very short talk, a couple of minutes, I think, uh, I found three ahs, A-H. Oh, yes. Uh, Um is very popular. We all get enormous satisfaction (laughs) out of putting um in between you'll pardon the expression, the substance of what we're talking about, right? And we all have our favorites. And the hardest part about this is getting rid of it because we've been doing this for a long time. It's absolutely in in the consciousness of our brain. Um, It's time for the um. There, There we go. And... Um, ooh, ah, it's all, there are all kinds of variations. Then there's worse things, like here's one uh, that we use. You know what I mean? What that, when, I, when I hear that, what it means is this person thinks I'm an idiot. You know, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? The, the 49ers have a problem with their quarterback. You know what I mean? How can I not know what you mean? So they have fillers. And when you're certainly in courtrooms, the idea is to have no extra sounds. But when you give us a stream of facts, it was April 2nd. It was 75 miles west of Flagstaff. Alice Sakoti was in her tent, a member of the Navajo Nation, She was 14 years old. On Route 89, a man walked along, coming from nowhere and going nowhere. And in his pocket was a 22 pistol. I didn't use any extra sound. I just built the anticipation of, in that case, what's going to happen. And you can get there. One thing that I'm noticing is that in this discussion, so much of it just keeps looping back to the tempo, which I think is probably why it's number one on your list. You know, if you just slow down, it helps you with your emphasis. Of course, it helps you with your clarity. 
the tone, volume, it all comes back to tempo, I think. I, I agree with that. I think that's very uh, glad you said that. One thing that is also related to tempo is the sixth and final of your tips, which is using pauses when you speak. You exaggerate the spaces between the words and your sentences. In, in music, there are composers who really think and analyze and write books on the pauses between notes. And all that's kind of interesting, by the way. But the pauses are what can give a dramatic aspect to what you have said. That you've said something central to the case. And you've let them think about it. And yeah. uh, that's, the, that's the beauty of pauses. It can be done, but it takes work to get this voice to be willing to not leap to the next word. There's one last suggestion I would make on this whole subject, which I've not only suggested to students, but I've done it myself. You're sitting at the council table. It's time for your final argument. The judge says, uh, Miss so-and-so, uh, you may proceed. You get up. As you're walking to the jury box, you take a deep breath and you start slowly. And if you start slowly, that sets a tone that your speaking apparatus picks up on. Because if you don't, if you start to write, you'll never get out of that. You might get out of it, but it'd be really hard. So now I want to shift gears and talk about uh, a book that you recently had published just this past summer. It is your a memoir of your career in law, and the title is Justice at Trial, Courtroom Battles and Groundbreaking Cases. So first of all, congratulations on writing the book and getting it published. One of the things that was really fun for me to read about was how you were really put through your paces by some of the most iconic Supreme Court justices in our history. So to start us off, could you just dazzle us by naming some of these court justices you have argued in front of? Well, I I argued uh, in 1979 and I argued in 1989, but uh, in those those cases, uh, Justice Berger was the chief justice. Uh, Justice White was there. Wizard White, who has a curriculum vitae like nobody should have, you know, he he went to Oxford and he was an all-American running back and he had the highest grades in the history of the Yale Law School or something. It's all too much. Nobody should be allowed to, to do that. And so you prepare and you prepare and you prepare because Uh, they're going to ask you some of the best questions. Not only do you have the nine standing there, but you have all their law clerks who who, are brilliant personified. And and the the first time I was there, there were battles between one wing of the court, uh, Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall, for example, with 
some of the conservatives. There were more conservatives. I needed liberals and there were more conservatives. And for half an hour, they pepper you with questions. And what they do, they're so, most of them are quite smooth. Would you say that this and that, and you can just feel my case is disintegrating as I'm standing here listening to this question. I don't have a chance. And what, what shall I do? I'll keep going, you know, I'll keep going. And uh, in the first one, I was quite sure we weren't going to win. It had to do with privacy and it had to do with the police violating a rule. And the big division in the Supreme Court, uh, then and now actually, is that the police are either hamstrung and we've got to help them get their job done, or the police overstep constitutional bounds. And they, when that happens, then some evidence needs to be suppressed. That's what the case was about. Uh, I, we're back to nerves, you know. Do you ever get nervous? Yes. I was sitting in the Madison Hotel the night before, and I could just imagine the questions that would just come at me like uh, some kind of a linebacker in, on Sunday afternoon. And uh, But I, there was another aspect of it, too, and that was that I was so excited to be there. Um, there's a lot of cynicism in the world. There always has been. But when you walk into that building, that room, and there are the burnished tables, there are the uh, the pens from the 1800s, you know, feather pens, mm -hmm. actually. And, uh, uh, and there they are. Now, you know, in a in a uh, at a cocktail party in San Francisco, I might I might say, you know, it was White got that so wrong. I mean, you know, this and, that. and that, now there's nine of them, and each one can ask you a question at any given moment. But I loved it, and I say this in the book. And I thought, this is I, I'm very lucky to be here. I mean, this is incredible, uh, and uh, so that was a wonderful event. Okay. So then, um, as the book describes, I was called one day and I was asked, uh, you were a federal prosecutor in Phoenix. Yes, that's true. And uh, you were had something to do with Rehnquist? And I said, well, that's true. And um, they said uh, he was doing something at a voting booth to, to curtail the amount of voting in a black and a Hispanic neighborhood? And I said, yes, he was, he, he was there. I went down, I was in charge that day of complaints and for, on voting. And I went down and he was there. And um, so they said, would you testify in front of the Judiciary Committee because he's up for Chief Justice? And I didn't just say, oh, yeah, whoopee, I'll, I'll be there, I can be there tomorrow. I, uh, what I said was, you know, a lot of people did a lot of things. Um, it was about 30 years ago, I think, 25, I think it was 25 years ago. And they've apologized for it. And, you know, they're past all that. 
And, uh, you know, why should I testify now? They said, did you read his testimony uh, that he gave when he was appointed to the Supreme Court as a justice on the Supreme Court? I said, no, I, I hadn't read it. So I said, he said, well, he says he didn't do anything like that or some, some words mm. like that. I said, oh, and um, would I testify? I said, if I was subpoenaed, I would. And after I read his prior testimony, I would. So uh, back I went, and there's the Judiciary Committee. And I gave my testimony, and they grilled me for two hours. I don't know if the Nita board would want me to say this, but I never had more fun in my life because... That was the moment in my life where I understood the difference between political truth and courtroom truth. And, and courtroom truth, by the way, is really good. And political truth is what we're witnessing today in the extreme, where not even truth is not even a starting point anymore. So, but anyway, uh, to stay on the story. So I went back. And they were grilling. Republicans were grilling me. Democrats wanted me to add that there were the babies that were thrown into the air. The Republicans had the spikes and they were killing the babies. And stuff. No, I didn't see anything like that. And uh, I had a lot of experience putting witnesses on the stand at that time, a couple of whom were in yeah. real danger when, they, when I was prosecuting. And so in any event, I did that. And uh, I, I will say this, just uh, uh, Senator Biden was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he, with the cameras rolling, he said, aren't you afraid that uh, this will hurt your practice? I said, well, I hope not. I hope it won't. Um, but uh, it didn't really. And uh, so then I got another case. And it was, it was for all the political parties, uh, all but the Republican Party, but all political parties in California to object uh, under the First Amendment grounds and uh, uh, right of association to not have the legislature limit what they could do. This is a very interesting, important case. I go back into the same courtroom, the same burnished tables, the same feather pens, and there, sitting in the center seat, is Justice Rehnquist. He's oh, Chief Justice of the United States. He had already disqualified himself from three cases where my name was on the brief, including uh, a case in defense of Roe v. Wade. My name was there, and he disqualified himself on that case. It didn't go very far inside the court, but he disqualified himself. So... Uh, what would he do? What would he say? Well, you have to read the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have become a, a mad salesperson in the publishing industry. I wanted to ask you, when you were in that Senate Judiciary Committee and you were being kind of aggressively interrogated by Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, um, for the first, for, I don't know if it was the, for the first time ever, but for once, you were not the person asking the questions, and instead, you were the person having to answer them. And so, mm -hmm. I wonder if that experience changed you. 
um, made you more empathetic or, you know, what kind of um, effect that experience had on you as an interlocutor going forward? I think it's a good question. I, um, I was there uh, to maintain a principle. What was the principle? Uh, and now, with my voice, as we've been discussing, I'll state it in rather dramatic terms. No one in this country, no one in this country should ever make it their business to reduce somebody else's vote. If that isn't what the founders had in mind, I'd be very surprised. And so the principal told me that this is worth doing. And if I lose some practice, I some business, you know, I, you can't make everybody happy. And that's, that's what I was going to do. I was certainly going to defend myself. And um, that senator is, is a very pleasant guy. He was a great friend of uh, Teddy Kennedy's. You know, they, they got along pretty well most of the time. And uh, uh, Orrin Hatch, and he's from a Western state, Utah. And, and so it's all, it, was all, it was all okay with me. But I wasn't afraid of him. And one of the reasons was there's a movie where Jimmy Stewart goes back to Washington and tells them all off, and it's a great hit. People love that when it happens. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and there I am. I'm in Washington, and he's telling me that, uh, you know, this didn't happen, that didn't happen. He's just floundering around, kind of. And... um, then uh, finally, I, uh, timing is everything. And I said, uh, I said, do you think I came back here to Washington to testify against the future chief justice of the United States? And I just made it up. And he said, yes, yes, I do. I think you made it up. And I said, you know what? I'd rather be home in San Francisco having my favorite lunch at Jack's restaurant than sitting here looking at you. <laughs> the crowd was anti-Rehnquist, and they just went nuts. And uh, so the next, that was in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, so with the comment about Jack's Restaurant. So next week, I went to Jack's Restaurant for my favorite lunch. And <laughs> out comes Jack, who I had never met before, with a bottle, it was like $200 bottle of wine. I know that's felony, getting paid off for my testimony. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, it was good wine. I don't think I was afraid very much in my practice. No, it doesn't sound like it. Uh, no, I, I just wasn't. Whether that's the sports I played in high school and college, I don't know. Whether it's my personality, uh, more likely. Um, but it is something that lawyers, trial lawyers, any kind of lawyer really has to have. There have to be times when there's no alternative. One of the biggest issues for lawyers, difficult issues, is where the client wants to do something illegal, unethical. We have uh, now a group of 
those people who are all indicted and everything, they didn't make the decision they had to make. Well, you have in your career taken on some very controversial clients. Um, I'm thinking, for example, John Walker Lind, who most of us know of as uh, the American Taliban. He comes to mind. Did you ever have to deal with people disagreeing with you for taking on those representations or misunderstanding why you would even contemplate it? Yes. Uh, John is not in the book at his request. So I do talk in the book about representing people charged with terrorism. Uh, and um, uh, I won't go into his case particularly, but... Uh, you know, the prosecutors don't always get it right. I mean, let me say that much. And um, I, the the lawyers that I've read about uh, took it as a matter of course, and lawyers today take it as a matter of course, that when they're representing a despised person, uh, a lawyer who allegedly, now proven evidently, killed his wife and his son, and there they are. Then they are there. They are standing next to that person. What are they doing that for? What are they doing that for? They could write wills. I mean, they could they could do estate planning. Why are they there? And I tried in the book to get at some of that, to answer that question, which a lot of lay people ask, is how can you do, you know, how can you do, how can you do? Maybe there's something in our character that likes to speak truth to power and the hell with the consequences. Now to answer your question, uh, we had death threats uh, in several of my cases. We had death threats, we had... Uh, people who drove us around in different directions every day. We had instructions to our families as to how to protect themselves. Um, and as I say in the book, and this may just be misunderstood, and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, I think it's the highest and best calling uh, for criminal lawyers. And they do it every day. They do it every day. They're on TV every night, and there they are standing next to these people who might be mentally ill, um, might might not have the parts of the brain called empathy about anybody. And they make them, the lawyers make themselves into experts on mental illness and what arguments you can make for such people, how to avoid the death penalty. How do you get it so it's only life without possibility of parole? And I have a case in a different chapter where the man served 17 years in jail and I was asked to try his murder case when, when he got another chance. 17 years later, he got a chance to retry his murder case. And we did a team from Morrison. Uh, Forrester did that. And... Uh, so there's resistance in criminal lawyers. There's a, you know, I'm going to fight this, and that's what we're going to do. And uh, I'm not sure what the psychology of it is. In my case, 
I think it had a little bit to do with running into people in power over me uh, that that were wrong. One was a doctor, and the other one was a nun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah none will do it, that's for sure. So by the time I'm 10, I, you know, it's in the book, but by the time I'm 10, I'm ready, you know, to resist powerful people who are wrong, <laughs> you know. Well, one thing that we at NIDA know about you is that you always carry around a copy of the Constitution in your jacket pocket. And uh, from my perspective, I see your willingness to have taken on those kind of controversial criminal cases as an extension of that, as an exercise of your belief in defending the Constitution, of defending that we all, as American citizens, have the presumption of innocence, and that everyone, everyone is entitled to legal counsel. Of course they are. It took years to get it applied, but of course they're entitled to to counsel and uh, to make all the arguments. And, you know, reading these biographies in my early days of uh, John Adams, uh, for example, I don't like myself to any of these greats, but uh, John Adams represented British soldiers in Boston at the moment of enormous turmoil. So, okay, why did he do that? Why, why would he do that? He, he was the lawyer to get in Boston, as we say. He was the lawyer to get. And when Lexington and uh, Concord happened, he heard about it. And he got on his horse and he rode up towards Lexington and Concord for what reason? Because he wanted to see that there were actually dead British soldiers. And when he saw them, he said to a companion, I guess who was with him, he said, we're in it now. Why was he in it now? Because he was going to fight for a free country. Now, uh, did I get any of that wrong? I don't think so. Is it? I tell I tell young ones. I I really mean it. I would start again. I would start again uh, if I could. If I was twenty five. As a nation, over the last several years, we have found ourselves, unfortunately, in a rather protracted and multifaceted constitutional crisis, and we're being confronted with questions that we've never contemplated, much less endeavored to actually figure out the answer for. And so in going down this path, we've heard from whistleblowers and witnesses who have placed themselves at significant risk, like life or death risk, by giving testimony against those with great power. And so, you know, I'm thinking of some of the things that you've been talking about previously. And, you know, here we are. History repeats itself. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, So as someone who has spoken truth to power, what do you think it takes? What are are the characteristics of somebody who is willing to place themselves at huge risk and speak the truth? I have a chapter in the book about the investigation of the murders of two Irish lawyers in Northern Ireland. You talk about courage. You talk about courage. 
Those two, Rosemary Nelson and Patrick Finucane, gave everything they had. They gave their lives for representing who they represented. We went over there and investigated that, and we found uh, quite a bit that's described in the book. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the Irish history, which I won't go into, is the one of suppression, colonialism, unfairness, injustice. It goes back several hundred years. And it comes from, from two sides, the, the church and England. Yeah, and, and, and I, won't, I won't go into it any more than just referring to it frivolously as being Irish. But um, I think that the criminal lawyers that I know, first of all, they are among the most ethical lawyers I've ever met criminal lawyers, because I think part of it is they have to show that they are ethical. I mean, you know, there's suspicions about what, why they're doing what they're doing, and so I think they're very ethical. But the other thing is that um, they, at some level, want to uh, speak truth to power. They do it every day. It may be on small things like bail or not bail, uh, or they do it on big things. There's a reason why this person accused of these terrible things should be acquitted. And they get up, you know, they use their voice, they start slowly, and they do everything they can. I, I admire them greatly, uh, the criminal lawyers. I really do because uh, they're not afraid. Peter Fleming was a wonderful lawyer in New York City. I knew him quite well. He was a friend and uh, a good guy, a good person. And uh, he told a big crowd one time, he said, you know, within the rules, you win them any way you can. And that, that's what criminal lawyers do every day. And that's one of the reasons for the book. There's a view of lawyers that isn't really out there in the general understanding of what lawyers are doing. I mean, there are lawyers, and I describe some of them, uh, who spend all of their days representing poor people. That's what they do. Now, why do they do that? I mean, they could be in large law firms getting a lot of money, but they're out there in the neighborhood legal assistance places, or CRLA, which is the farm workers' efforts at justice. Uh, it's, it, I've always been enormously impressed with those people. It's fantastic. And that view is, to some extent, in this book, because I've known some of those people, and I know what they do. Well, and I would imagine that if they looked at the cases that you have taken on in your career, they would say, right back at you. So you've mentioned Ireland a few times um, from one, one American of Irish descent to another. I love hearing that and knowing that about you. You grew up in Boston and you had a, a connection to John F. Kennedy. Could you tell us what that is? Well, the connection was the same as millions had, but the inspiration was there to a lot of us. We, we, The Kennedy family and the Brosnan family both lived in Brookline. And um, it was back in the ethnic days, 
in the days when let's have all the Irish here, let's have all the Italian-Americans over here, let's have the Jewish people there. And uh, so the, the Kennedys represented to my father first, my father never went to uh, to, to college, and uh, he, the Kennedys represented the then somewhat new upward movement of Irish Americans. And uh, the father had made a lot of money in the liquor business. Uh, I didn't think of myself particularly as Irish. That was that wasn't when I was going to school. No, well, I was a third generation. Uh, Irish and um, we were Americans, as far as I think my generation was concerned. But uh, Kennedy came to my gra- college graduation, and uh, there were probably I don't know four thousand people in the football stadium. It was a hot day, and um, he gave a, a good speech. Talk about speech! His voice carried conviction. He had written a book on immigration, by the way. And uh, right towards the end, his voice came up with a real sound. And he looked at all of us out there and he said, our time has come. I believed him. Um, In 1960, in Arizona, where Carol and I then lived, we lived there for about three years. Um, we were in the Kennedy campaign, no no pay. And uh, I have a picture in the book of myself and John Fitzgerald Kennedy about five days before the election. And uh, uh, he, he was our, he was the leader. And I will tell you one story, if you don't mind. Um, as assistant U.S. attorney in Phoenix, federal prosecutor, we were invited over to Los Angeles because Robert Kennedy was attorney general. And he was going to talk. He did went around the country and talked to every assistant U.S. attorney and asked them this question. How can we make the Department of Justice better? So we all got up and we said things. And my boss when it came his turn, he said, uh, General, uh, our prisoners are in the Maricopa County Jail and they're being beaten. And Robert Kennedy turned to his left and he said to John Riley, John, take him out. And he turned back like, what's the next issue? I had seen federal government work the way it's supposed to work. The prisoners were taken out that night. And that was Robert. Robert Kennedy was real. So when he ran for president in 68, long time ago, you would think I I would have forgotten all this by now, but I haven't. Uh, I was the head of uh, lawyers for Robert Kennedy for president in Northern California. And that night it's described in the book and we were celebrating and all of that. And I, I, I actually went up, I walked up at lunchtime to Chinatown and there was Robert Kennedy in an open car. He was talking to a huge crowd about family, good subject. 
Kennedys. And uh, so I, I stood there and listened to him. He inspired me yet again. And, uh, and then he was gone. And as I say in the book, and this happened, I uh, tried to process, we use that word now these days, we try, I tried to process the loss of both of these men, but especially Robert. And uh, I couldn't remember whether I read it somewhere or uh, whether I made it up, I'm not sure, uh, but it's a fierce reaction. Uh, and it is, and I wrote it down in the book, you kill one Irishman, a hundred will come. And I decided then that I would do what I could to continue Robert Kennedy's agenda, and I've done that wherever I could. It's got to do with race. It's got to do with poverty. All the Irish come from poverty. All the Irish. And um, I've done my best, you know, here or there to, to, to live up to that. And uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that inspires people to recommit to things you care about, things that are really important. You mentioned the number today, the Constitution, free speech. Where are those things today? And they, they've got to be protected. Well, I thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Um, hearing you mention names, of people we've read about in our textbooks or we've seen in the newspaper and all of these premier legal representations. It's like the who's who of American legal history in the 20th century. So it's really been fascinating to talk to you. We have just a couple of questions left. We're shifting away from the legal questions, but I did want to ask you, because you've been involved in NIDA for so very long, I would like to know what the three most important things are that you learned at NIDA. Sometimes we learn things by being taught, and other times we learn by teaching. And so I wonder what you have learned from your time at NIDA on both sides. Because I was reminded of it, number one, uh, reminded of it, and I kind of thought you would ask me something like this, but uh, number, number one is being involved over all the years, starting in 73 and until COVID every year, uh, teaching that uh, learning is never over. Uh, it just isn't. And it's a great energizer as you go through life. Uh, and I'm not limiting it to the students. I'm in, uh, number two, I'm including the teachers. First time I got to Nita, and here are these trial lawyers from all over the country, some of them famous. And they, it, you know, I'm sitting there talking with them, and they're saying, This is the way to do it, and that's the other way to do it. You might do this and that. So learning is constant, 
uh, for for people at uh, at NIDA, and I think that's uh, important. But I also, you could criticize me this way. You could say, well, you live in a rarefied atmosphere. True. I'm at Morrison Forrester, a large law firm. Uh, I've taught at schools. I've certainly taught at NIDA uh, every year for many, many years. Um, and so that's a rarefied atmosphere. And, and that's why you talk about lawyers have something to be said on their behalf. <laughs> so, but that's not true. I know, I know what lawyers have done. And a lot of that comes from Nita. I mean, I would teach with somebody and then I'd see them defending somebody uh, in Chicago. Uh, I'm just going to, you know, end these comments with this. My friend Bob Hanley was a general block. He's the only lawyer I ever knew who majored in rhetoric in college. Okay, because I asked, I'll ask people, you know, did you take rhetoric in school? No, 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 no. Bob Hanley majored in rhetoric and he got the largest verdict in the history of the United States. And how did he get it? He told a story to the jury about a goat. And he got a billion six hundred thousand dollars. A story about a goat? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and these were the people that I met. There were a lot of them from Chicago. A lot of there always been great travelers from Chicago, from New York City, and uh, around the country. Up in the in Montana, there was a, a lawyer that I met. You became good friends. With them, we used to sing after the classes. We'd go up in the uh, mountains in Colorado, and and there was a uh, judge in, from Los Angeles who thought he could play the piano, but I'm not sure he could. And he would play the piano, and we would sing. The camaraderie and the let's all do this together, that whole atmosphere, I wouldn't trade that for the world. I really wouldn't trade it for the world. And uh, yes, have I been spoiled? Yes. How long have I been spoiled? Since I was about three years old. Does, <laughs> does, does the law firm spoil me? Are you kidding? I'm of counsel at, at 89. Are you kidding? But, uh, it's, it's part of the story in the book. But the heroes, a lot of the heroes in the book are not me at all. Their clients, their judges, jurors, um, young lawyers, especially young lawyers. And uh, those, those are a lot of the heroes. Well, I think you've enriched Nita as much as hopefully Nita has enriched you. Okay, so last question, and this is just, just a fun one to see what you are up to. What movie or TV series have you been enjoying lately? I am watching a show called The Hour. It's a bit nostalgic, but it's about a English newspaper uh, and I'm sorry, television and uh, with news people on it. And they are digging out corruption and they are exposing this, all of which, because I, as I have in the book, I defend a lot of newspapers, magazines and things, but uh, they are doing with great courage and all of that. Then there's the 
uh, romantic side of it, where all the characters are either presently in love with one of the people or used to be in love with the people or are going to be in love with them. And so I've been watching this now for about 10 days. That That is good. The other one I watched recently, and this is just old stuff, is a Western movie called Red River. And John Wayne is, creates a ranch and drives the cattle and does all that. Don't ask me why I like it at this late hour, but uh, it's, it's one of my favorites. Thank you for making time for us and sharing all of your stories. Thanks to Nita. I appreciate it. Yeah, Nita will change your life. I'll tell you what. Thanks so much. Thank you. In this interview, we touched on just a few of Mr. Brosnahan's incredible stories that helped shape recent American history. If you would like to read his new book, Justice at Trial, or watch his LinkedIn videos on voice quality, check the show notes for links. As the man himself admitted in his interview, there is always something new to learn and improve, even when you've been practicing for over 60 years. Thank you so much for tuning in to this special episode. From all of us at NIDA, we wish you the very best of holidays and a fabulous new year. Until next time, and next year, happy lawyering! May the Record Reflect is a NIDA Studio 71 production. NIDA, we are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community. Thank you.